Hello everyone, my name is Matt Hollingsworth and welcome to another episode of The Remote Show where we discuss everything to do with remote work, entrepreneurship, business, technology, and much more. Thanks so much for listening. The Remote Show is brought to you as always by WeWork Remotely, the largest community of remote workers in the world. With over 220,000 unique users per month, WeWork Remotely is the most effective way to hire. My guest on today's show is Matt Davey. Matt is the Chief Operations Optimist at 1Password, which means he oversees marketing, design, content, and partnerships, as well as hosting the Random But Memorable podcast. 1Password is a well-loved password protection app that we use here at WeWork Remotely that allows us to keep our passwords and sensitive info protected in an easy-to-use and ultra-secure way. Please go to onepassword.com to check out how they can help you keep your info safe and be sure to follow at Matt Davey on Twitter. Matt, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it, man. No worries at all. It's a pleasure to be here. So what I've been doing recently, and I think it's an interesting place to start as a jumping off point, is to talk about what it is that you are most proud of that you've done either in, in business or, or you can take it in any direction you like, but what it is that you are most proud of that you've done over the past 12 months? So personally, I made some really good ice cream the other day. You know, I was really worried about it and I knocked it out of the park. And it's not usual that I get to say that about something that I've either baked or made. So I'm happy about that one. In the wider business sense, I guess I've been at 1Password for a very long time. And we hit kind of 40,000 businesses paying and using 1Password with some really great feedback. And I think, you know, after moving from a very consumer focused app into more of a service and then kind of pointing our gaze towards business for a while, it brings me great delight that so many businesses are using it and really liking it. Yeah. And, and to your point there, we, uh, just full disclosure, we, we work remotely, use one uh, password and we absolutely love it. So it's always exciting when I get to talk to representatives of apps or, or online businesses that we use ourselves. And yeah, we, we love it. So anybody out there who's looking for this kind of product to keep your passwords in a safe and secure environment, then I encourage you to check out one password because it's, it's a great service. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, talking to customers of any size on a regular basis is, just, you know, one of the best bits of my job. So that's a good segue, actually. So your title is Chief Operations Optimist. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The COO, I guess most people know as. Right. So it's just framed in a unique way. So what does that mean exactly in 1Password? Can you go into a bit about what you do there? Because I'm, I'm curious, it seems so general, but I'd love to hear your take. Yeah, I think everybody has a different kind of take on what a COO role is. Personally, for me, it's overseeing content, marketing, partnerships, design, press, and product. So it's a really wide role. And we have a lot of smaller teams, and I basically oversee those teams. It's me being more of a creative side of the business, whereas CEO is, he likes to describe himself as the math guy. So he's he's very kind of numbers driven. And I am very not numbers driven. <laughs> Beautiful. So it sounds like that's sort of a good duo that you have. Was that role set out in that way? Like I saw that you grew internally. So is that something that you sort of formed your own role based on what your own strengths are? Or was that something that was set out before you started in your role? I think it was very organic. I started off as a, a designer on the product and, you know, we're talking like seven years ago. And I think it was our first iteration of our Android app that I started on. And then it was, you know, kind of gradually I moved on to, to other apps and then more towards the marketing site. And then 
things got given to me that weren't exactly the marketing site, but they were kind of the marketing area. And then we started doing more business-focused partnerships and we started talking to the press and that kind of started to get put on my plate as well. It turned into a very odd role because I was perhaps designing in the in the mornings and then in the evenings I would be talking to other apps and trying to get partnerships and building promotional pages and, and all this type of stuff. And then the CEO, Jeff, he kind of approached me and was just like, we want to kind of make this a bit more formal and, and this is kind of the role that we're looking for. I think it was very much organically positioned towards me. I don't think you'd ever hire someone and be like, hey, these weird departments need someone kind of making sure we're going in the right direction. So yeah, I, I think it was it was very organic, basically. And when you started, what was the state of 1Password as a, as a business when you first came on? So we were a team of 20 people. Um, and for context, you know, we're over 160 now. We're much bigger than I think people think we are. And hopefully, you know, that that kind of 40,000 business mark really drives that home that we're, we're approaching a, a sizable company now, which is which is nice. And when I joined, we were all remote. And I think I was one of about three people in the UK. So already by that point, we were cross time zone, which is I see a lot of remote companies now that are continent centric, let's say, <laughs> and kind of don't dabble in hiring so diversely across continents. But it was done before I even arrived, which is unusual. Yeah. So I think it'd be valuable maybe for our listeners who don't know about 1Password, just take a step back to talk about the main product and what problems you're looking to solve. So what is it that um, is the main sort of focus of 1Password as a business right now? And, and maybe we can talk then after about how it's shifted. But what is it that you're looking to solve for right now? So essentially, we're a service if you use the internet you need something like this, right? 1Password is the baseline for online security. It's that secure place that you can trust and keep everything. It stores and generates unique passwords for every site. And really the problem that we're solving is unique passwords are really the only defense against something like data breaches or anything like that. You know, a strong unique password means that when there's a data breach at some website that you use, you only have to change that single password. Whereas the problem that most people face is that they will reuse them across several places. Uh, they will either you know, forget them or something like that. And when a data breach happens, as they seem to every day now, the thing is you don't really know which one you've used and maybe you have to change them in 10 different places or, or something like that. Um, and the other aspect is that you generally just don't notice right? You know, these companies have data breaches and then you're just like, ah, get around to that. And so 1Password actually alerts you when you've been included in one of these data breaches as well. Wow. That's actually not something I knew. We all see those data breaches all the time. And it is sort of one of those things where I just will assume that I will be notified or I'll find out somehow if it's really pertinent to me. Yeah. And then it becomes, oh, that's interesting. And kind of move on with your day. But you don't actually stop and think about what are the potential personal or business consequences of that sort of thing happening. So that is a fascinating piece of the business that I actually wasn't aware of. Yeah, I think people think they're targeted a lot more than they actually are when it comes to um, you know hacking and, and stuff like that. And I, I think when you bring up the topic, people are like, oh, yeah, but you know, I'm not a target. Most of the 
small businesses that exist are are really, you know, the bread and butter for people who perform attacks like ransomware. You know, the, the big ones always hit the news, but it's the small ones that always just pay the $600 or, or, or whatever the kind of smaller amount that, that these hackers ask. Um, so I think it's a, it, it's a wide ranging problem. And online security is such an interesting area because you pose the question about how has our focus changed over time? You know, our focus was largely on these password things that I have to remember are really, they're a pain, right? So when we started, it was all about productivity. And, and yes, you know, as a business, we would be secure, but that was really so you didn't have to worry about it. And over time, I think it's developed into something that people really understand that these companies are not holding their data perhaps very well. And, you know, you need a defense against that. And so I think the general population's view on security has changed over time, I think. Interesting. And you found that that has gotten, I guess that's a positive move towards more security. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And, and you know, not just from us, but if you look at all the products that Apple or Google or any of these have brought out over the last couple of years, it shows that passwords are a big problem and it shows that no one's coming up with this golden bullet to kill the passwords and, and they're going to be around for quite a lot longer and mm. we need a better way as people to deal with these and i mean so far that looks like a password manager to us <laughs> well i mean it's just given your growth and given the fact more people are using your product i think that's a pretty good indicator that you probably are right in thinking that way so it will be interesting to see sort of what the growth looks like for you and also maybe competitors out there that are looking to get into a similar space do you find there is more competition out there for a similar product? And, and how do you think about just how to differentiate yourself from those other products? So I think that there are a lot more competitors out there. It seems like a password manager is kind of a thing as something that you can add to your security bundle or something like that. There's very few companies that concentrate solely on a password manager. There's competition as well in terms of other products like SSO and that's single sign-on like sign in with Facebook or something like that. And I think all of these things cover different areas of security. At some stage, you're always going to have a password, right? Biometrics are great and Face ID is great, but behind it all, there is still a password that you need to save. And so I think the competition from those angles have kind of increased, but you still need a password manager. It might be more convenient to do other things, but you still need a password manager. But the amount of password managers have increased. And I think part of that has only helped us, as weird as it sounds. You know, when Apple introduced password autofill, people looked at us in the room and it was just like, oh, well, you know, goodbye to them. But actually what it's done is just help normal, non-technological people find the limits of those products and then realize, oh, actually, I can store my passport files. I can share the Netflix password with the rest of my family. Like I can do all these other things and I can kind of move on from just the browser storing my passwords or, or something like that. And I can start doing more things with a more advanced product. So I, I think it's only helped us. Wow. I guess it is just bringing more visibility to the problem that you are looking to solve. And then, yeah, maybe it's just an evolution of people's usage is that they'll move on to a more secure platform like yours once they've realized the extent to which they are exposed online. Yeah. And then having a variety of products helps us as well. We have a business product and really the success of the business product has come from people using us as a consumer previously. 
I would say a unique selling point. It's depressing that it's unique, but our unique selling point is really that it is usable. There are so many password managers out there that are like, right, but what you've got to do is, you know, grab this key here and then you've got to filter it through this other thing and then you'll get your passwords, but only on this machine. And if you want them anywhere else, you're on your own. And so I think usability, although has come a long way in security products, it still has a long way to go. And I mean, you know, we've got a long way to go as well. I'm not saying that we're incredibly easy to use. A password manager in its own way is actually difficult to use. There are a lot of parts that you have to put together and it's a behavior change as well. But I think we make that as seamless as we can at any time. (laughs) Yeah. Have you found that the usability component might be actually working against you? Because people's perception of a secure password manager is that it inherently needs to be difficult to use because then therefore it implies that it's safe and secure. Have you found that just in terms of people's perception? And is that something you've thought about at all? I just am curious about that. Yeah, I mean, the trust of a password manager and and that kind of feeling of security, it's a very difficult thing to harness, really. When you're making your product almost more difficult to make it seem secure, that kind of security theater is is only going to bite you when people give it up very quickly. <laughs> so, I, I mean, no, essentially, we, we haven't really found that. I think it's quite difficult to go around and say we're trustworthy and, and we're secure. I think you really have to do it by your history as a product. And we've had a few knocks in the past, but really, we've been around for 13 years and never had any kind of major incident. So I think our history really speaks for us. Yeah. And maybe it just is people's perception about you as a business and how long you have been around. Because I didn't know that that's how long you've been around and been successful in that area. So have you thought about, again, I'm not, I'm not a marketer, so I don't know. And obviously, if you've thought about it this more than I have, but just the idea that you have been around for this long and, and yet you haven't had a data breach or anything of the sort, is that something you've thought about communicating more, I guess? I mean, it's a, it's a difficult one to shout about, right? As soon as you shout that nothing has happened in 13 years, the emphasis is on something that could happen. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, our, our white paper is out there and available and security experts have kind of vetted that. And so I, I think basically approval from the industry is where we're trying to go in our approach to saying we're secure. The fact that experts have looked at us and said, yeah, these guys are doing everything right. And the fact that we basically we hire people to do things like that, you know, we have a hundred thousand dollars up for a bug bounty to try and capture a flag and it has not been captured. So, you know, we're constantly doing stuff to test our own systems. And I think that speaks volumes. Yeah. And there you go, folks. There's your test for the next little while. If you've got a lot of time on your hands and you're uh, your expert in security, go try to claim that bounty at one password and let us know if you do, because I'd be pretty interested to hear about that. Yeah, it's it's a public program. So you can go to uh, Bug Crowd or Hacker One. We're on both of those. Okay, and we'll link to that as well so they don't have to go and search for that. So one of the things that I, and this is kind of going on a bit of a tangent, but I'm just so fascinated by online security. I'm guessing in the position that you are, you have a pretty good pulse on sort of the state of online security is right now. And I guess it's become mainstream to talk about this sort of thing. And I think it's a good thing that it has because it's brought a lot of awareness. But is the public perception of online security different from the reality that you've seen working in the industry at all? Or is it pretty well as it, people feel about it online? Or is there is there any overlap or disconnect between the public perception and what you're seeing? Yeah, I think so. I, I think when one person gets hacked, 
the idea is that the hacker only did it once. And I think that public perception has to change because the idea of I'm not a target just doesn't work. You know, when we look at things, some of the largest hacks that were out there, like the Yahoo one that stole a crazy amount of people's data, they didn't really do it to steal those people's data. They did it to target a very few, I believe they were uh, Russian hackers that were trying to hack a, a very small group of other Russians. So really, you know, it just got caught up in what was made essentially public. And so there was a lot of backlash about that. But like, you know, you're never really a target. You're fodder for these massive credential stuffing attacks. And by credential stuffing, uh, essentially what I mean there is what happens to data when it's stolen is it gets bundled up in these big kind of zip files that get passed around. And then it's just people looking to try those details on other websites. So if you reuse your password, you can become caught up in these. There's a whole world on YouTube that is kind of 13-year-old, 14-year-old kids who have downloaded these details and they're running them through programs that they got free off the internet to try and find free Spotify accounts. It's not that shady figure in a hoodie that's particularly targeting you. It's the whole thing if you park your car next to an unlocked one or you don't lock your car, it becomes a target, right? If you do the bare minimum and not reuse passwords and and use the advice that kind of everybody gives you about passwords, you can probably bypass a lot of these attacks that would potentially happen to you. Mm -hmm. If you could go in and change one thing about everybody's online presence to increase their security online, what would that be? Is it changing the individual passwords or what would be the best sort of bang for your buck? So the security kind of community in general, I think would probably say 2FA two-factor authentication as like if they could add one thing to everybody's account it would be that right it's the two things the thing i know which is my password and the thing that i have which is usually my phone or something similar i think that the usability of two-factor authentication comes under question us as technical people i think it's always the thing that i add on the account first but you know actually some of the highest adoption rates are in kind of the single digit percentages of people who actually turn on to FA. I think, you know, even when it's built into devices like Apple, I think theirs is still single digit adoption rates. So it's really difficult to say if I was going to change any online habit, it would be to turn this on for everybody. Because I think what it would do is to confuse a large amount of people. So I think from an experience side, what I'd do is just say, just use a password manager or at least, at least create a unique one for every website using whatever generator that you use and write them down if you have to. But I think unique passwords, they protect you against so many things because you're not giving out one key to everything. You're giving out individual keys that only unlock themselves, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I think that's the good takeaway here for our listeners. And I'm sure that people hopefully have already thought about this themselves. But if not, then another reminder for you to go check out 1Password and get yourselves a little bit more secure or if not a lot more secure with their service. It's a no-brainer, folks, really. (laughs) It's just that's the reality of it. (laughs) So I did want to shift a little bit to talking about 1Password, maybe talk about the culture a little bit and talk about remote work. So are you fully remote or or do you have an office as well for 1Password? So everyone is remote. We do have an office that we use for team meetings and and a few people head in because they live nearby, but we really don't know anything but remote. 
yeah, it's an interesting company. <laughs> yeah. So when you started, was that something that you talked about as sort of the roadmap for 1Password or as a piece of it? Or was that just not talked about and kind of just assumed that you would grow in this way? So when it started, it was two friends and their partners. And they were not living very close to each other at that point. So the remoteness kind of just organically happened. As they brought on more people, they found the right people and didn't bother about location. And I think we've just done that ever since. We now have people in nearly every time zone. I think the diversity that it brings, having people in different locations, you know, when you sell a product to everyone, having a variety of people that understand the different ways that people live is just so valuable. Yeah, no, and that's not one that I even get to talk about very often as a pro for remote work, the diversity of thought alone. And the different perspectives it brings to your company is probably in itself, you know, a reason to even consider or start to consider remote work as, as a positive for your company. So you've grown significantly. Is that something you had to sort of think about in terms of process for remote work? Was there a time where you thought, okay, we're at this threshold of people. Now we need to start thinking about how we work remotely and how this sort of plays into our productivity and our design and that sort of thing. Or is that sort of not considered as much as a standalone issue to address? I think we've done it for so long that it's kind of a given that we wouldn't create a team and place them somewhere. And I think most of us know the dangers of some of the company being remote and then some being in a certain location. It engenders this weird kind of us and them uh, mentality that as humans, you know, we're always looking for a them. And as soon as you split the company down into people who have in-jokes about, you know, the location that they are and other people who have general in-jokes, I I think it gets dangerous. So I I think it's always just been a given for us. And, you know, there are challenges to remote work, especially when scaling. But I don't think they're any different than, I think they're different, but I don't think they're any more or less than, you know, scaling a normal company. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I talk about often is just how you maintain or, or build a culture of in a company that people want to work for or people want to be a part of. And I'd be interested to hear about your company, 1Password, just because it seems like there's a mission behind it. It seems like you are trying to help the world be more secure online. And that, and that might be one of the reasons or one of the things that really leads to that strong, cohesive culture. Do you think that plays into it? And how have you thought about sort of building your culture as a remote team with 1Password? So our culture is very much built around smaller teams and, and communities there. Uh, so I think that the people that you generally interact with on a on a daily basis is probably, you know, the people in your team, plus, you know, a few others that kind of dip into, you know, hobby based things with each other. But, you know, the nice side of time zones is that there's always someone about. So even if, you know, you're in the UK, for example, you know, we, we have a small contingent here that, that kind of talk to each other and, and stuff. So I think it's really built around lots of small teams. That, that kind of all interact with each other. I think really, you know, that helps our culture, but our culture is essentially in-jokes, right? It's the things that you make when you all share something. So, you know, we have in-jokes around anything from we had our all call, uh, which is what we call the the monthly call where everyone's on it. And, and our CEO, Jeff, uh, he talks about, you know, where the business is, where it's going, Uh, what we did well that month, what we're changing and perhaps doing differently the next month. And 
an in-joke that he likes charts. So, you know, every time everybody starts posting random charts that are from Reddit or something like that, and he's posting his as well that are like, you know, Google Analytics and stuff like that. So I think it's really about things that bring you together like that. It's very hard to talk about culture and be like, right, we're doing this. This is our culture. Because one person makes that decision and then some people might disagree with that. And then you've got us and them again. And so I think it's really kind of things that you do to help move your company in the direction of all working together and all fighting the isolation, basically, because remote work can be very isolating. And so I think, yeah, smaller teams and, and small communities that bond. And, and so if you're on one team in 1Password, you're usually on at least a couple, right? So your main team might be design, but you might be running in a couple of other projects. And so the main design team we have, I believe we have six, maybe seven designers now, but then, you know, the project might be five other people. So like, it's a lot about kind of the small teams that you're working on. And yeah, it helps to keep it like that. Have you found that getting together in person has helped the feeling of isolation? Is there anything else that you guys do to remedy that issue? Because it's one that I think is one of the bigger ones of remote work and and being on a team that's distributed, it's just the fact that, you know, you can't see your team, you can't go for a beer, you can't do those things that lend themselves to getting to know people more. Is it something that you are deliberate about or encourage people to try different things? Or is that something that you leave up to the individual? Yeah, so we have a fair amount of internal, what we call conferences. We call them conferences because essentially what we used to do when we were, I don't know, 50 people around there, we used to go to a conference and then actually we would find it more exciting to build stuff together while in the same room. So we'd hang out in the hotel lobby. So this idea of conferences kind of came from us actually going to them. And so what they've grown into, because we got kicked out of hotel lobbies, was growing that into, okay, well, now we have an office. Let's bring these five people into the office and we're going to run this project in the office for a week. And so you get all that kind of face-to-face meeting goodness, but you get it for a week and then you get to go home and have a balanced life. And I think that really helps because, you know, you can discuss in a situation like that all the things that you perhaps wouldn't otherwise. And then in terms of the whole company getting together, we've done this for the last, I don't know, eight, nine years. I don't know. Anyway, a lot of years we've gone on a cruise ship. And so the idea of the cruise ship is basically to keep all the people in one area and have somewhere that can feed us all and do something that's this dietary requirement and and that kind of thing. Also kind of allows you to be involved as much as you want to be involved. You know, people like interaction with people on a varied scale. So I, I think that's really important to kind of not mess up people's thing by being like, hey, this is a team time and we're all gonna really heavily socialize when some people don't live like that. So yeah, like the cruise is really good for all being in one area and talking through those things. And it's good to kind of company-wide products and projects and things like that are really good to start there when everybody's in the same room because everybody is focused on one thing. Whereas time zones and and things get in the way when you try to start company-wide objectives in an afternoon on a Friday or something, right? Some people are already at home. It's Saturday for other people. And so, yeah, I I think it really helps all being in one room. It helps on the social scale as well. Like I get to meet people that aren't in my small little teams or or anything like that, you know, which is really good because I I think people assume others are not contactable sometimes when you're a fairly large team. 
And I like the fact that we're really approachable with people. If you really have an idea that you think you want to invest time in or something like that, the idea of emailing or slacking the the CEO in, in other companies just doesn't happen, right? But in ours, it's really approachable. So I'd love to pick the cruise ship thing up just for a second, because I think that's really unique. How long do you spend on the cruise ship? It really depends. So it's usually somewhere hot because, you know, our office is in Toronto. And in January, that's not really an option. I lived there for a while. It's, it's you know, I, I found the winter bearable, but the summers are humid. <laughs> so the the cruise ship really started because they are the kind of places that can deal with 160 people plus you know, some plus ones and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, some people bring their entire family. And and so, you know, there's not a lot of places that have stuff for all ages, have kind of conference rooms that we can work in that are in daylight. A lot of these are like basements and stuff like that. The cruise ship has just worked on every single angle. The internet is always ropey because it's usually from a satellite or something. <laughs> and when you get 160 people trying to do uh, customer service to answer customer questions and help our customers as much as we can, that gets a bit ropey, but we've made it work. It's really fun. That's awesome. I'm always curious to hear about different companies and what they do in in those, because most remote companies have some sort of offsite that they do for that sort of thing and getting to know people better and, and just to bring the whole team together, put, put faces to names if if they haven't already done so and, and that sort of thing. And so, but the cruise ship one is not one that I've heard before. So uh, that that's fascinating. I would love to talk a little bit about sort of you and your experience working remotely if possible. So what does your day look like typically? Is it something that you have very set schedules or how do you manage your time on a daily basis? And then we can talk about weekly and monthly too, but just day to day. So it's tricky as a person who basically oversees other things. You have to be really flexible because you are essentially the temperature gauge of process, right? Is this product going well? Is this part of this going well? And, and that type of thing. So you have to be really flexible around the other teams that are there. And I think my day is largely split into two. So my mornings are generally way more Google spreadsheets and Google Docs than I actually want to deal with. I unfortunately don't get to design very much anymore. I, I still try and, you know, grab some things and design because that's what my background is. I've been a designer for so long that I don't want to give that up. And it's really useful as a skill as well because it helps you inform the product and how people use the product, I think. But I set up my day based on calendar events. So I create a four four hour calendar event and I'll be like, right, I'm going to design in this time or right, I'm going to get this product specification use case document and I'm going to review this and, and stuff like that. And so I think really I just drag time around and, and then try and spend my time doing that. But yeah, a lot of it is meetings with various people. And we try to keep meetings as a minimum. I think as you progress in a company, there's always the aspect of like, I'm just going to add a meeting for this and, oh, I'll just grab someone's time for this. But we are pretty careful about it. Yeah, it's it's generally catching up on projects and kind of moving them forward one project at a time. Mm -hmm. So this is actually one of my favorite questions, taken in any direction you'd like, but what have you learned along the way that you wish that you knew when you started at 1Password? Is there anything that you can think of that you would have loved to have known when you first started at 1Password? And you can go before 1Password as well, but maybe we should start there. Yeah, so I think when you're kind of working on one thing, right? when you're doing one thing, 
you have this mentality of, okay, I'm going to go and get feedback. I'm going to come back. I'm going to do this one thing again. What I really wish that I had started to do was this whole idea that I have of, I create one note every week, right? So I have a note. This one's called week 36. And everything within that week, I make sure that I write down that either I have to like check up on next week or I have all the questions that you sent me before this interview. Like I've looked in that and I've copied and pasted that into my week note. And so when I come back to it, it's really interesting to kind of go through. I I have, I think three, maybe four years of these now. I've just every week I can kind of go back. It really helps to look backwards sometimes and kind of find out what happened in that week and so all of the kind of interview notes and all of, you know, when I'm, when I'm trying to hire someone, like everything like that, anything that I pick up that I hear that I find really interesting, any book recommendations, it's really good to have a place that you put these. I think I was struggling for a while because 1Password for me, even when I was not at 1Password, was the place that I put things, right? It was the drawer in my house that I keep my passport in, right? It's that drawer, but on my computer. So, you know, there's all my insurance and everything like that in there. But I wasn't really keeping one of those for my general life, as in like, you know, I need insurance and that type of thing, and I need somewhere to put that. But it's kind of that everything else. And I really wished I'd been doing those kind of from the beginning, even if I was only working on one thing because I think it just helps to keep you on track so much better than, than anything else. You know, other people's idea of this week note kind of changes and adapts to them. I've gotten a couple of people at one password doing these weekly just through me kind of evangelizing the idea of this, but it is really interesting to come on Monday morning and get like a blank sheet and then just go, right. Okay. What are some things that I really need to do this week? Or what are the things that I should move from last week that I can kind of go, okay, like it slipped, but I really need to do this this week. Or this person has mentioned this to me and I need to look at that. And so I I think most people keep notes on topics. And I think the whole idea of that is interesting, but it just means that stuff gets lost to me. Taking things a week at a time is what I would have done from the beginning if I knew how well it worked. (laughs) Does that inform your process and how you sort of get things accomplished during the week? Or is that sort of just a reminder? What purpose does that serve for you in terms of your week-to-week progress? Oh, absolutely. It's the focus of my week, right? If I have 10 minutes, I'll come back here and I'll find out what I didn't do or what I perhaps strayed from or anything like that. Yeah, it's my focus. It's my task list. It's my kind of scratch pad of okay, this got mentioned to me and we want to focus on this. And like, here's my five bullet points that I then need to turn into a product spec or a use case. Or I spoke to a customer and they had these three really good points. I'm not going to open up GitLab issues or anything like that while I'm on the phone with the customer because it's, you know, kind of rude. Um, <laughs> so, so what I do is I just, you know, throw them in this notepad. And when I come to that next week, perhaps I haven't done that or I've spoken to another person in the company and they've been like, hey, I saw that 10 times, right? And we should totally do this. And so it, it really helps with bringing you back to center, basically. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that. I'm trying a few different things because I haven't really perfected that for myself either. And I don't have one that really has worked well for me in terms of making lists and things. But what I'm doing now is I'm actually, I have a planner, I have a physical planner that I'm, I'm using to try to do those things. What I found is that 
if I don't centralize things, if I don't have things in one place that I always know that I'm going to check them, having too many different apps, too many different to-do list productivity kind of places, then I will lose them. I, will, I won't check them. I will forget about them and then things will fall through. So right now I'm, I'm doing a similar thing actually, which is interesting. I'm, I'm writing down everything business and personal into one place. And then I'm hoping that that will lead me to, to always go back to that one thing and, and be consistent with it. Because otherwise, yeah, like I said, things will fall through. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. Yeah, and I think that format and perfection are really the enemy in productivity, right? I always saw all these, you know, processes and I'm like, okay, right. I've, I've got my 28 things, right? And I've got my 28 things and I'm going to be like, okay, I've got 28 things this week and I'm going to put them all into this app in this right format. And, and the next week I'm going to be like, right, well, I don't have time to do that. And so I'm just going to do, you know, 26 things and then you break it. And, and I think, you know, when you've got a format like that, it, it's so difficult to keep up with. Maybe it's me being too busy for my own good and, and, <laughs> and stuff like that. But I just think that like, if you have a freedom of a blank document and stuff to throw and no kind of judgment, it works so much better than, hey, fill out these five things about your day every day, because that, that might not be what I want right now. Yeah, there is something very, I think, uh, uniquely productive about just a blank sheet of paper and no other strings attached, no other structure involved. Just here, here are my ideas and this is what I want to do or notes that I've taken or things like that. I think that's there's something just very effective about being that simple. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree. And I'm hoping that this planner thing works out for me. Uh, if not, I'll, I'll let you know, I'll try something else. <laughs> so Matt, you've been so generous with your time. We really appreciate it. We're, we're really excited about one password and, and, uh, what you guys will continue to do in the future and, and what the product is right now where it's fantastic. I do have some closing questions for you. So the first one is if you weren't involved in technology or design um and so that was a difficult question to actually form because you're involved in so many different things but if you weren't involved in in technology and design um what do you think you'd be doing um i think pottery or baking i I love having an end result um software is so kind of iterative and and gradually fixable i try and strive for like the one percent better rule which that kind of keeps me going if you make something one percent better every day you don't get that with, with baking. Usually it's, you know, you can't really fix a, a bad bake. Kind of once it goes wrong, it goes wrong. Um, but I still love that that end result. With baking, it's it's bread. It's the simple kind of, you know, you have two ingredients and you've suddenly made this this loaf of bread. Yeah, I'd go pottery or baking, neither of which I'm good at. <laughs> so I, 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 don't, I don't think I'd be doing very well at them. But uh, yeah, that's what I'd be doing, I think. Well, I, and apparently you're good at making ice cream. So that's, that's something you have going for you. Yeah, that's true. I don't know how I did that. Yeah, it's chewy, which was not a, you know, that's not a, a thing that you normally get with ice cream or maybe want, but it was chewy and it was good. Well, there you go. Chewy ice cream from uh, from Matt Davy. There you go. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that because I've actually heard pottery for that question before. One of my previous guests, Jason Freed of Basecamp, said pottery as well. Also, he said gardening, which I thought was interesting. And uh, those kinds of things are, I think, common because it is, like you said, it's the it's the process and, and, and a very tangible end result that uh, can be improved upon. I think that's sort of enticing for a lot of people involved in, in technology. Yeah. The interesting thing about software is the feedback that you get. And so the end result is always kind of in flux. So it's that constant satisfaction of putting something out there all the time. 
But I guess as a baker, you have that every day, right? So as a pottery person, you, you are making those things every day that someone either uses or buys or eats or something like that. So I, th- I think, yeah, just having that kind of end result that people can give you feedback on, I, I think is what keeps me going. Hmm. So the next question I have for you here is, uh, you can take it in any, any direction you like, but if you could force everyone to read one book. Um, that's, that's a difficult question because I, I like biographies. They're basically different biographies that you read and you rarely find one that's just like, you know, this could be applicable to everyone, right? Usually I find people that have real passions in life. So one of my favorite books most recently is uh, Serious Eater by uh, Ed Levine, who made Serious Eats. So just the insane level of of effort that they put into their their recipes and stuff. I find that fascinating that, you know, they've obviously gone to a lot of effort into putting this one thing. Yeah, it's it's really cool. But if I was going to say, if, if I was going to say a book to be made to read by everyone, I would say This Is Going to Hurt by Adam Kay which is a doctor describing the national health system of Britain. And I think it's a book that everybody needs to read because it's kind of, it goes so deep. You know, our, our NHS is is obviously catering for the entire UK and, and so they're constantly under, under stress. But it's a really fascinating insight into how people treat doctors. It's basically the, the story of him becoming a doctor and then quitting and becoming a comedian. And so, yeah, it's it's basically about how people treat doctors. And I think it, if you're a doctor, you're doing such an amazing thing and you're doing such a hard, stressful job that when someone kind of treats you badly while doing it, it's uh, it's kind of horrible. But it, it, it's an also a hilariously dark book. Yeah, no, that's that's a good one. I, I have never even heard of it. I will definitely will link to it as well. Uh, and this is that's one of my favorite questions because it leads my reading list to get longer and longer but uh yeah and i have a couple of doctors in my family so i will definitely give that a read and, and hopefully be able to i think hopefully maybe that'll give people some more empathy towards the, you know, the medical profession and realize what kind of important work they're doing obviously it's some of the most in, the most important work probably that's around so that's a good one i like that one yeah i mean i, I don't know maybe you're expecting a, a kind of business book of of uh, working remotely or something like that but like I, I i tend not to you know i've read the normal ones that everybody reads uh, most of them written by uh by base camp employees but um <laughs> yeah I, I i i don't know I, there's something about biographies that's just you get in uh someone else's life for a while um which i just find fascinating it's it's particularly good when you're building a product to have that kind of superpower of turning into someone else and kind of thinking as someone else. And, and, and I think, you know, this book just built so much empathy into, <laughs> into me almost to the point where I was just like, wow, I'm, I'm never ever going to the uh, NHS doctor at all because I, I don't want to stretch the system anymore than it's already stretched. But, you know, I, uh, I, I got over that. I'm, I, I go to a doctor. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I actually get a, a variety of answers to that question. And more often than not, it's actually not a business-related book. It's always interesting. Sometimes it's, it's literature, sometimes it's you know philosophy, and sometimes it's it's uh, medicine-related. So that's that's great. So my last question here before I let you go here, Matt, and um, this is open-ended, so again, take this in whatever direction you'd like, but what is the best advice you've ever been given? Hmm. Best advice. You see, I know it, 
but I don't want to give my CEO a big head by choosing him over like Buddha or someone, right? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, he really changed my my view on on how to scale a company. He always tells me to hire and we're always constantly hiring for different things. And I viewed it like, oh, we need a department for this. And then it's going to knock on to mean that we need someone else for this. And the simplification that he gave to me was, you know, you have Bob in the design team and he's really busy and wouldn't you like two of him? And so effectively hiring what you see as another version of a person instead of a a role that kind of adapts and has this and this and this, I think it's a really approachable way to grow your company. You know, just not worrying about, okay, uh, you know, overheads of of this and, okay, are we going to need to put him on this team and this team? I think just seeing it as if you had another one of these people, would that be valuable to you? And using this mentality, we have essentially doubled our company most years that, that I've been there. We're now at 160. I think we'll be at 200 by the end of this year. And we were just about a hundred, I believe, last year. So you know, and, and I can certainly see people of value in in our company that I would be like, yes, I would, I would have another one of those in an instant. Right? They're so valuable. They're so talented. The projects that I could run if I had double their time. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting way to to grow the company. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a unique one. I like that a lot, and. That mentality obviously has been working well for you. Is that sort of, without getting too into it, is that something that you have had issues with just in terms of, it seems like you're constantly hiring uh, people. Is that, do people come up, come to you and then you sort of, you find a place for them or do you sort of recognize that somebody else is really great and you want to find somebody like them and if you can find somebody like them you bring them on and if you don't then you don't hire for that position is it is it that kind of way of of going about it so i I think it's a it's a bit of both really to kind of cop out on the answer (laughs) um when you find someone and you're like that that it's a brilliant fit you put them wherever you feel that they would do best right like if if it's a designer and they're wanting to work on a certain project, like you do your best to kind of say, I think you'd do really well on on this particular thing, and and you know, go for it. But I think when we start to look for specific areas that we need to hire for, I basically do base it on that the the person that is already doing that job, and and be like, right, okay, we need we need another one of this, like we need that skill set. I'll bring that person in. And, and to say, like, you know, do you think that, that this will be valuable for you to kind of, you know, impart all of your wisdom and all of your product knowledge and, and stuff on this other person and kind of share the, the burden between two people? And, and as we need to, you know, scale leadership and, and things like that, we've done that organically. So that hasn't really been a problem in that sense. When you hire remotely, one of the, the interesting things is the variety of people that you get. So when when I'm looking for a, another version of a person, I, I don't have that person in my mind, right? I don't have exactly those those things in my mind. I, I have the the kind of person that that would work with, and and what they would be working on, rather than the qualities exactly of that person. So the idea of casting your net essentially on the world, which is what we do every time we hire, uh, it, it can be really intimidating. 
So I think bringing it down to earth and, and being like, right, okay, like we need these certain skills. It, it really does help. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, that's an interesting take. And I, I'm always fascinated to hear about hiring, uh, especially remote teams. It does add a little bit more complexity and nuance to your, uh, your process of onboarding and hiring people that you think are good fits. So that's, that's super fascinating. Um, but Matt, I think we should leave it there and I'm, I'm, I'd love to have you on again. I have more, lots more questions about how you do that exactly, but maybe we'll set that for a different time. Before you go though, is there anywhere else that you want to be sending people that um, we haven't already mentioned? So obviously we want to get people to go to 1Password. Is it 1Password.com? It is, yeah, 1Password.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at 1Password um, or you can follow me if you if you really want to uh, at Matt Davey. All right, we'll link to all those and we'll link to the, the book recommendation and, and all the rest of the things we mentioned here. But Matt, I, I, we really appreciate you coming on. I learned so much and um, maybe we can do this again sometime. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. Anytime. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks so much again for listening to the show. Be sure to check out WeWorkRemotely.com for the latest remote jobs. And if you're looking to hire a remote worker, WeWorkRemotely is the fastest and easiest way to do so. As always, if you have someone that we should talk to, any advice you have, or if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, please reach out to us at podcast at WeWorkRemotely.com. That's podcast at WeWorkRemotely.com. Thanks so much again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.